Hey there, everyone. I'm back. Uh, I'm back. The podcast is back. I'll touch on that in a minute. Let's see if I remember how to do this. Took a little time off. Just got back from the desert. Spent 10 days in Arizona. Watched some baseball. Caught up with an old friend. You may have heard him here on my uh, previous shows. Eric Briggs hadn't seen each other in person in quite a few years. Got to spend some good time with him and some other friends down there. And uh, just kind of unplug and recharge, you know, like a lot of football players do this time of year. We have a lot to get to today. A lot happened while I was gone. I knew it was going to happen. I knew. I knew it. I'm not a betting guy, but I would bet. I would have bet everything that I own that the Geno Smith news would have broke while I was gone. And not just because, you know, that's how life goes, but also we knew with the franchise tag deadline yesterday that that would spur some action in the quarterback market. It certainly did. And the Seahawks lock up their starting quarterback for at least the next couple of years, potentially three or more. We'll see how it works out. So I'm going to give you my thoughts on the Geno deal, what it means to the Seahawks, what it means to Geno. What's next? Is it good value? Is it the right thing for the team to do? Lots of differing opinions out there, although I think the vast majority of the Seahawks fan base is relieved, at least, uh, to see this happen. Just, just knowing that your starting quarterback, a very good starting quarterback, presumably, uh, is locked up and ready to go, and you don't have to worry about that going into the offseason. Um, what are some of my thoughts coming out of the Combine? on how it affected some of the position groups and and certain prospects that may or may not fit the Seahawks, and then also uh, how it'll affect the draft. I mean, that's what this all comes down to, right? What, what we're going to see over the next couple of weeks is going to reshape how we feel about Seahawks draft needs and what they might do a lot. Um, the Seahawks have always hedged the draft by their actions in free agency. We know they don't tend to play at the top of the free agency tiers. Can't really afford to again this year. Uh, but they fill in some holes. And, and sometimes they plug in really, really good players. Last year, Uchenna Nuosu is a great example of that. They got him fairly early on in the free agency process. And so as you, as you look forward to the draft, you can just check that box off, right? We'll see if they do that this year with some of the needs in the front seven and at linebacker on the interior offensive line, maybe even at some of the skill positions. And uh, and I'll give you a little bonus, little five-round mock draft that I threw together, just looking at how, how things might go and what a, mock, uh, a draft might look like for the Seahawks, given that we know Geno Smith is in the fold and what we saw from some of the prospects in Indianapolis at the Combine. Also, happy one-year anniversary. <laughs> Uh, this day a year ago was an impactful day. Obviously, this was the day that Seahawks traded Russell Wilson to the Denver Broncos. Also the day later on uh, in the afternoon when they released Bobby Wagner. One of the most impactful, if not the most impactful, transactional day in Seahawks history. Um, one of those days as a Seahawks fan, I'm sure you remember exactly where you were and you always will. For me, it was... Uh, it was overwhelming and it was frustrating because I just finished up a little three-day getaway and was coming back from Lake Chelan and was just about to enter Stevens Pass when the news broke. And as soon as the news broke, my phone started blowing up and two things were going on at the same time. One, I'm in a car. I'm driving for two and a half hours. I can't do a show. I can't react. And two, uh, we were getting into where reception was spotty. 
Uh, so it was tough to even respond to people personally. Uh, certainly couldn't tweet about it while I was driving. A um, little bit of a frustrating time until I got home and I was able to dissect all of it and and kind of uh, process all of it and take that in. So one year ago today, man, how things have changed. And uh, it was interesting, funny, somebody, uh, one of my favorite Twitter followers, followees, one of my favorite members of the Twitter family today retweeted uh, a tweet from another podcaster uh, who I'm not a huge fan of, won't name by name, um, but his overreaction to how devastating the trade was a year ago today. And I believe the exact tweet was, there is nothing the Broncos could give us in return that would make this worth it. I wonder how that person feels today. But the fun part about that was reading the comments to that tweet at the time. And it was 80% negative. 80%, what are the Seahawks doing? This is it for Carolyn Schneider. They don't know what they're doing. The franchise isn't in good hands anymore. We're doomed. Get ready for two to three years of a painful rebuild. If we knew then what we knew now, or what we know now, right? And thank goodness Pete Carroll and John Schneider knew then what we know now. But now... What happens moving forward? And just real quickly, speaking of moving forward, uh, why am I here talking to you today under the field goals banner when Dana Brandon and I did a show a couple of weeks ago saying farewell? Um, we were granted uh, a one-month extension to be able to use the name of the show uh, while the folks that are in charge of this at Vox Media get things transitioned for us. And what that means is that they ha they've yet to, to find... Uh, a suitable platform um, to move the feed over to and then hand those credentials over to me so I can continue as uh, basically as this podcast, but rebranded as Seahawks Forever, which will now begin on April 1st. Uh, I'll give you more details as those things happen throughout the month. But what it means is we can continue to do shows during a very, very impactful month um, with free agency starting next week on the 15th. Actually, the legal tampering process can begin on the 13th. That's when a lot of news breaks, as we know. And we're going to see a lot of moves. We're going to see before then, potentially the Seahawks make some, some roster decisions, clear some cap space. Um, deadlines spur action. And certainly the franchise tag deadline spurred a lot of quarterback action, just as the start of the new league year will, will spur a lot of action. We're seeing veterans being released now, every day, former Seahawks Shaq Griffin was just officially released by Jacksonville today. Kenny Galladay is going to be released by the Giants, they announced this morning. We're going to see a lot of that as teams scramble to get their affairs in order because you have to be under the salary cap by the 15th. So teams like the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, who today sit at $56 million over the cap, haven't made any of those substantial moves yet. They're going to have to do some things. We've seen the New Orleans Saints start to make some of those moves so that they could fit David Carr, uh, Derek Carr, sorry, uh, into their salary cap with the with the deal that they signed him. So let's talk about quarterbacks. Let's get to that. I'm sitting in Arizona a couple of days ago. We're watching the combine and the news breaks that Derek Carr has signed uh, his new deal with the New Orleans Saints for an average annual value of about $35 million. Within minutes, Geno Smith tweeted, God is good. So did that mean at the time that he just thought cars, the news of cars deal was going to affect his in some way or looking back now with the news being announced later that day that Gino had signed his new deal with the Seahawks. 
is at the moment that he knew something was official, that it was that it was done, that he and his agents had agreed to a deal with Seattle. Let's talk about the deal. Three years, $105 million on its face. And it does not matter how often these things happen. Over and over again, we see this. Where the initial numbers come out, the overreaction. And make no mistake about it, when these things are leaked, they're they're leaked from the agent. The agent wants to make their client look good. Three years, $105 million, $35 million a year. A lot of overreaction to that at the time. That's way too much. He's not worth that. It was just one good year. You've heard it all, yada, yada, yada. I try not to engage those people who are really dug in on that side in debate, but I can't help myself sometimes. I've been going back and forth with a guy in a Facebook group. I know I should stay out of those things. I should have learned by now, but it's like, as I told someone today, it's like watching a train wreck or a car crash. You just can't look away. I can't help myself sometimes. Uh, but there are still people out there today who think that Geno Smith is quote unquote trash, quote unquote, a bum, a journeyman, one good year, an anomaly a flash in the pan. Um, We're going to talk about that here in just a minute. But really, we should all learn by now to wait for the real numbers. It's about structure. How much is guaranteed? What are the outs? Are there void years included, like in the car deal? And really, when you look at the Geno Smith deal, even though we don't know all of the structure, and so we cannot yet see exactly what the cap hits are for year one, two, three, it's really a three-year, $75 million deal. And I've even seen it described as a two-year, $50 million deal where you can earn up to 60. Uh, Three years, $75 million deal, $25 million average annual value because... There are $30 million in incentives. That is a tremendous amount of incentives built into a quarterback contract. We typically don't see that. But Gino's situation was unique. And what, what makes him unique is that he understood that. So $40 million in guarantees is the other key number. And that's, that's the part that can be spread out over the life of the contract. It's been reported that he will receive $52 million in his first, in the first calendar year. Keyword there, calendar year, which means there's likely a roster bonus about this time next year. By the start of the new league year, a lot of those are due. Um, Shelby Harris is due a $2 million roster bonus next week before the start of the new league year. And so if the Seahawks want to cut Shelby Harris, to save, I think it's eight and a half million dollars against the cap. They're going to do it before that date, before they owe him the $2 million. Now I suspect, little side note here, I suspect they want to keep Shelby Harris. A lot of value as a veteran that can move around the defensive line, played well last year. And so they may, they may try to structure something and, and in doing so, promise him that bonus and do something else to lower that cap hit for 2023. The way they structured the Geno Smith deal, it sounds like when we see the actual breakdown, 
it's going to appear that there will be no guaranteed money in year three at all. And so all they would be out if they if they cut him, if they move on from the deal after two years, is the dead cap hit. But there will be a, a significant cap savings in year three if they want to move on. And in fact, I've seen speculation based on the little bit we know so far that if things don't go well, if he doesn't replicate his 2022 success, if 2023 doesn't go well, or if they acquire another young quarterback that they think is ready to take the reins in 2024 and be the franchise quarterback moving forward and the upside exceeds the production they get from Geno, that we may even look at this and see that they could get out fairly pain-free after one year. Again, no exact terms, but from everything I read and all the opinions I see out there, it sounds like the cap hit in 2023 will be in the 12 to $15 million range. And that's huge. Because if they had just franchise tagged him, we know it would have been $32.5 million against the cap. Very, very prohibitive number. So you can see why the Seahawks wanted to get this done before that deadline passed. What does this mean for the Seahawks? What does it mean for Smith? What does it say about Geno Smith? The naysayer, the cynical fan out there has said in the last 24 hours, it means that he had no market, that no other team was going to pay him. And he knew that, so he came back to the Seahawks where he knew he'd get $40 million in guarantees. By the way, Geno Smith has made $17 million in his career up to this point. He will triple that in the first calendar year of this new deal. Good for him. I don't think it means that at all. And here's why I say that. Andrew Brandt was on the Rich Eisen show last week. Andrew Brandt was a former front office executive of the Green Bay Packers. Very active now on social media and, and um, on ESPN. He's a guy that's that's been in charge of managing salary caps and signing contracts. He was heavily involved during the time that the Packers drafted Aaron Rodgers, even though they still had Brett Favre. And he said, they were talking, the news had broke that Daniel Jones and his representatives at the time, a week ago, were seeking tw- uh, an average annual value of $45 million. Ridiculous, right? He doesn't have the track record to show that. But Andrew Brandt said, if he goes to the open market, he'll get that. Now, he didn't get quite that. I think it's closer to 40 in the deal he signed yesterday just before the franchise deadline. But it just goes to show you the demand for quarterbacks. Daniel's own situation was a little bit different. Team had a first-round draft pick, a high first-round draft pick invested in him. He played year, had kind of a Geno Smith sort of resurrection last year under a new head coach. There's reasons that they believe his best football is ahead of him and that they're paying him for what he's going to do rather than what he did his first three years in the league. A little bit different there. But I believe that if Geno Smith had hit the open market, he would have gotten maybe not more than the $35 million average annual value on its face in the full length of this deal if he hits all the incentives. But his guaranteed money and maybe the length of the contract would have been would have been greater. There would have been interest in him. If you're of the opinion that Geno Smith is trash or a bum or not good enough to sign to this kind of a deal, then my belief is that you you just have your head in the sand and you're not willing to look at the big picture, which is 
get your hands on everything you can read about what the league feels about Geno Smith, what other players say about his performance and his talent, what other front office executives say about it, what reporters who cover the league intimately and well say about it. And here's the thing that people forget too. I want to say this. From those people, typically what you hear is this. He's had six shitty years and now he had one good one and we're going to pay him. He didn't play for six years. He was a backup behind future Hall of Fame quarterbacks. And Phillip Rivers, Eli Manning, (laughs) Russell Wilson. He didn't get opportunities. But the Seahawks have seen him operate come to the office every day and go to work. They didn't just hand him the reins last year and cross their fingers. They saw how he worked. They saw how smart he was in the film room, how he processed his grasp of the offense. And they saw the arm talent every single day in practice. Let me just tell you something. For those of you who are a little worried that maybe we overpaid for a flash in the pan, Let's talk about how good he is. Let's look at the numbers. Just a couple of things that I pulled from a couple of different sources. First of all, on its face, this is what the fans look like for look at first. They pull it up. 30 touchdowns, 11 interceptions, 4,200 yards. Led the NFL in completion percentage. Fifth in the NFL in passer rating. Took every snap for his team. Well, he stunk in the second half. Are we going to get second half Gino or first half when the league figured him out? That's what they'll say. How bad were his last eight games? 15 touchdowns, eight interceptions. It's not ideal. An interception a game. It's not great. That'll get you 16, 17 a year, right? Okay. You know who has uh, 16, 17 interceptions this year? Pat Mahomes, Joe Burrow, Josh Allen, (laughs) Dak Prescott, Kirk Cousins, Derek Carr, Josh Allen, Aaron Rodgers, Patrick Mahomes, Joe Burrow, and Russell Wilson, of course. All more interceptions than Geno in 2023. So even if he, if you took his last eight games and the pace he was on, he throws 17 interceptions still puts him behind most of those guys. He'd fallen about the middle of that list. Are turnovers a concern? Sure. But are some people paying a little too much attention to that? Yeah. And also I'll say this. If you don't think Geno Smith played well in the second half last year, you just weren't watching the games closely enough or you just don't understand the game. Man, I'm telling you that the Thursday night game against San Francisco, I think, is the best example where people use that as evidence that he that he didn't have a good second half. He can't beat the 49ers. But he brought us back from being down two scores. He's the only reason we were in that game. No running game. It was Walker's first game back. Defense is struggling. I think he's the only reason we had chances to win games in the second half. And the big time throws, the arm talent, the obvious arm talent. 
PFF grades. Let's look at that. Ranked ninth overall in his score, 12th overall from a clean pocket. He had 14 TDs on throws of 20 plus yards. That's two more than the second best quarterback in the league. His big time throw rate of 5.6% ranked fifth in the league. His grade versus middle of the field coverage, 85.8. PFF basically said there is nothing in what we see about him that indicates there will be a regression. By all metrics, even the ones you might use to poke holes in his performance, nothing about what he's doing is fluky. And then today, something came out. It's been around for a couple of years now. It's called the Deep Ball Project. It ranks every quarterback in the NFL at accuracy of passes thrown 21 plus yards. So it favors quarterbacks that are making the tougher throws down the field against coverage in the NFL. Not the game managers, not the dump off kings. You're not going to see Mac Jones do well on this list. Geno Smith was number one in the NFL in the deep ball projects rankings. Accuracy of passes thrown 21 plus yards. Ahead of Burrow, Mahomes, Allen, Wilson. Burrow was fourth, Mahomes sixth, Allen seventh. Russell Wilson, the famed deep ball thrower, Russell Wilson, 11th. And you know what? This is kind of fun to look at. We know that Geno threw a lot of interceptions his first two years in the league, right? On bad teams, but we're not going to talk about that. His rookie year, sixth in the NFL at deep ball accuracy percentage. The naysayers, the cynics say, can't win. It's not a winner. He won nine games last year. And I would argue that if our defense was anything other than horrid in these three games, should have beat Atlanta, Vegas, and Carolina. Also, that second half swoon that they talk about, how bad was our defense? And how bad was the interior offensive line? The league started to figure out that Austin Blythe, especially when paired with Gabe Jackson at right guard, was a liability in pass protection, started to attack us there. I'll finish with this about Gino. I was wrong about him. I said it on this show leading into the season. I've said it on Twitter multiple times. I thought based on what I saw in the preseason and based on where I thought the team was, I didn't think there was any chance this team had an opportunity to win nine games and challenge for the playoffs. And so I was in camp Drew Locke. Wasn't impressed with what I saw from Geno Smith in the preseason. Was impressed with the arm talent I saw from Drew Locke. I was wrong about Geno Smith. It's just a shame that so many fans out there are still too proud or ignorant to admit that they were too. So I think, based on all of that, this is maybe exhibit A in the modern NFL of a win-win quarterback contract. The Seahawks didn't tie themselves up to him for years on end. They didn't mortgage the future, risk the future. Lower cap hit in 23 will allow them to do some things. And again, I expect once we see the actual breakdown come out, they're burying most of this in 2024. Right now, as we sit here today, the Seahawks have $117 million in cap space for 2024. 
obviously some of that will be taken up by Geno and maybe a large chunk in in a similar fashion to how they structured Tyler Lockett and DK Metcalf's contracts. So the bigger cap hits would be in year three and even four. And there's very few major contract decisions coming down the pike for 2024 from the Hawks. They have a decision to make on Noah Fant. They picked up his fifth year option. This will be the last year of his deal. Do they want to keep him? Extend him? Do they extend Uchenna Nuosu this year, who will be entering in the, into the last year of his two-year $19 million deal? If they do, can lower the cap hit even more for 2023 and free up some money, but some of that will obviously come off the cap for next year. Jordan Brooks, they haven't decided whether to pick up his fifth-year option yet. If they do, it's $12.7 million. But again, if they decide to extend him, then presumably the 2024 cap hit would be lower than that. Daryl Taylor's the other one, but do any of us believe he's going to be able to command top-end edge money? So the Seahawks have a ton of flexibility in 2024. And then we can get into a whole nother conversation about how dynamic and balanced top to bottom this roster could be. Young, controllable, affordable, heading into 2024 if they have another great draft this year. That's a conversation for another day. I absolutely love everything about this deal. It's a it's a no-lose situation for the Seahawks. If you don't like Geno Smith and you don't think he's any good, you think he's going, and and here's, I, I know I said <laughs> this would be the last thing I say about Geno, but I can't stop myself. Here's the last thing I'll say. If you're one of those people that is so convinced that he's a bum, and I use that word because I see it all the time, then you're, you're literally saying that you think he's going to be a liability in 2023 with an improved offensive line and... I'm just going to go out on a limb and say that defense is going to be significantly better with five picks in the top 80 of this draft. and It's going to be better. You're saying that based on what you saw this year from Geno Smith, you think he's going to go out next year and be Tyler Wilson? I'm sorry, Zach Wilson. <laughs> okay. Enough about that. So now what, right? Now we look at the rest of the roster. QB is taken care of couple of things that hit appealed or uh, that uh, that struck me right away because another thing that happened while I was gone is Austin Blythe announced his retirement so the Seahawks need a center I was gonna say upgraded center they don't have a center on the roster right now Kyle Fuller is also a free agent and not good enough to bring back in my opinion uh they do still have Joey hunt on a futures deal but we've been down that road before he's not the answer and I'll, I'll say this. This is why I believe the Seahawks are going to be aggressive about addressing the center situation over the next month. I'd be surprised to see them sign a free agent center and really the class is weak. Jason Kelsey's not going anywhere. Ethan Posick wasn't good enough when he was here. Had a better year in Cleveland, but is going to command some solid money. I think the Seahawks are going to draft a center. And I think it's a huge priority for them in this draft. And I'll even take it a step further. Austin Blythe had said on the record after the season that he was either going to retire or play for the Seahawks, nobody else. So his decision to retire two weeks ago, I think is a pretty strong indicator that the Seahawks were not going to offer him a contract. So just real quickly, and we're going to break this down in much more detail as we get closer to the draft, but 
there's reasons for optimism. If you are worried about the center position, it's a strong group. Not as strong as it was before a couple of guys decided to stay in school, but strong nonetheless. Most fans know about John Michael Schmitz now, the center out of Minnesota. Had an outstanding senior bowl week, looked like a plug-and-play starter. Didn't test well athletically at the combine, but if you watch his tape, he's a starter in the NFL. Joe Tipman out of Wisconsin, another guy, big, much better athlete than he looks. Uh, for his size, I mean. Did not test at the Combine, so we'll wait to see his pro day numbers. Steve Avila, we did see test at a TCU, who played right guard for them last year, but has starting center experience from earlier in his career. A big, strong guy who can just move people and move pretty well at 330 pounds. Luke Whipler out of Ohio State has kind of become my favorite now. He's moved up because overall he was the best athletic tester of the, of the centers at the Combine. And he's also played a ton of football. 32 starts at Ohio State after redshirting. Um, became a starter as a redshirt uh, freshman. And then they've just played a lot of games there at Ohio State being in the postseason. So 32 starts for Luke Whipler. And you, and you see at the Combine, it wasn't so much the testing that was impressive, but his footwork in the drills, his, his kick step, and the way he can get back into pass protection also can get to the second level. 6'3", three, 300 pounds. Not the strongest of that group, but fits the mold that they liked in Austin Blythe, but he's bigger. Bigger, stronger, more athletic than Austin Blythe would fit that offense really well. And then Jarrett Patterson's another one to keep an eye on out of Notre Dame. Played guard last year, so his stock fell, was better as a center. And Daniel Jeremiah said during the combine, said he's a center in the NFL. He's a starting center in the NFL. Two-time captain. We know how much stock Pete Carroll places on things like that. Uh, the front seven is obviously obviously going to be a focus as we move forward in the offseason. I do think they'll address that to some extent in free agency, maybe not with the star player that you want to see them sign, but they'll bring in some solid players. And uh, we're going to do a free agency preview next week, Dana and I, and I'll give you some specific names of guys that I think could be attainable for the Seahawks that would fit and help them. So the big question then is this. Seahawks signed Geno Smith. Now we don't have to worry about them taking a quarterback at five, right? For those of you who don't like that idea. I think it may make it more plausible that the Seahawks take a quarterback at five. Especially when you look at the way that contract is structured or appears to be structured. Front-loaded, no guarantees in the third year, we think. Can get at, can get out of it after a year, two, certainly. And it, I think it becomes, it becomes particularly compelling when you think about two specific quarterbacks out of that group of four that we know is going to go most likely in the top 10. C.J. Stroud out of Ohio State, who had the best combine throwing the football of anyone. Bryce Young didn't throw at the combine out of Alabama. And then Will Levis from Kentucky, Anthony Richardson from Florida, who blew up the combine. The greatest single quarterback tester in combine history on the relative athletic scale. Uh, it's an overall athleticism score uh, scored a, a perfect 10 um, Threw the ball. Well, I mean, there were some misses, but even he admitted that he has to work on his footwork. 
Um, Will Levis was dynamic throwing the football, showed off that arm, showed off the confidence, kind of the cockiness. When asked why he was going to throw at the combine, because some players don't, Bryce Young didn't, they want to they would rather throw at their pro day when they script it and they're throwing to their receivers. Um, said, I've got a cannon. I want to show it off. And he did. And not just that, quick release, clean mechanics, gets rid of the ball quickly. Those two players are generally regarded, Richardson and Levis, as higher ceiling, potentially, than Young and Stroud, but also higher bust potential. Because Levis seemed to regress on the field last year. Has thrown some interceptions. Same with Richardson. So you have to... You have to project when you're looking at those two guys. And the Seahawks, by signing or by hiring Greg Olson as their quarterback coach after losing Dave Canales to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, going with a veteran quarterback coach who is known and has a long track record of getting the best out of quarterbacks that are considered good, not great. Jared Goff, Derek Carr has coached quarterbacks in this league for a long time and coached them well. Might even say that you can trust him a little bit more than you might with Dave Canales with a young quarterback with upside, a guy like Richardson or Levis. I go back and forth on this <laughs> every day. I sat here doing this uh, five round mock I'm about to unveil for you. And I'm sitting there at five for 15 minutes. Because even though I went into it thinking I want to structure this in such a way that I do take a quarterback to show you how it can still look to not panic, that you can still address other positions in a good way in this draft because it's so thick. I think the strength of this draft is day, th- uh, day two, the second and third round. Uh, I sat there 15 minutes because I couldn't do it because Tyree Wilson was still on the board in this in this simulation. Jalen Carter was still on the board. It was hard not to. Before I get into this, I'll say this. No matter what particular tweet you might see from me over the next six weeks or anything that I might say on this show, that I believe that when that day comes, draft day, that the Seahawks are going to do whatever they feel is best in the moment. They're not going to decide April 1st that, gosh dang it, we want the best quarterback out of this draft. We're going to mortgage a bunch of these picks. We have to move up to to one to guarantee it. They're not going to do that. I think they're going to go into draft day with a plan A, B, C, D, E, F. One of those, two of those, three of those might include taking a quarterback. They're going to see what happens. Who's calling them and offering them moves? What happens with Jalen Carter between now and then? I was adamant the day the news broke that he was facing a couple of misdemeanor charges in the fatal death, the car accident that claimed two lives at Georgia. Um, I was adamant the Seahawks are going to take him off their board, that the lessons that they've learned about character and not ignoring red flags in regards to Malik, Malik McDowell in 2017, they've been open about how that changed their grading system and how they stacked their board. And that a guy like Jalen Carter might just not be on their board now. I took a lot of heat for that on, on Twitter. A lot of people said I was writing this kid off and, and uh, convicting him. I didn't say a thing about the kid. 
But if they get to draft day and there's still a lot of questions and his case hasn't been resolved, or God forbid there's other new charges added to it, then there's no way the Seahawks are going to take him no matter how talented he is. So we don't know and we won't know until that day. We won't know what teams trade up ahead of us. Is Arizona going to move back? Is Indianapolis going to move up to one? Is Chicago going to trade the first pick? There are all sorts of reports that they are taking offers, but at the end of the day, they might not like them as much as they like Will Anderson, for example. There are reports coming out of the combine now that Tyree Wilson around the league is higher on some teams' boards, maybe a lot of teams' boards, than Will Anderson. And that Will Anderson conceivably could fall to five right into the Seahawks' laps. So I don't think, they're not going to predetermine what they do heading into the draft. But this is one scenario that I could see. A couple of disclaimers. If you don't like a certain player, personally, if you've decided Will Levis is not someone you want the Seahawks to touch, and I don't care. <laughs> because if John Schneider, through his evaluations and his staff's evaluations, and everything they do to pick these guys apart, decides that he thinks Will Levis can be a star, it doesn't matter what you think. He'll take him. And he might just stick and pick and take him at five. So just prepare yourself. Same with Anthony Richardson, same with whatever you think about these quarterbacks because of what you think you know or you've read somewhere. John Schneider's never had a chance to take the fifth best player in, in any draft. And certainly not in a year where there are very, very highly regarded quarterback prospects in that top 10. He's going to look under every single rock and investigate every single potential red flag. He's going to look at every throw these guys have ever made. He's going to talk to every coach they've ever played for. They're going to work him out. They're going to interview him privately. They're going to have Zoom meetings. They're going to be sure one way or the other that this is the right thing to do. Doesn't mean it's guaranteed to work or not. Could still be wrong, but they're going to do everything they can to get all the information they can so they can make the best pick possible. So here's what I did. Five round mock. I did, uh, when I got... When it came to my pick, Tyree Wilson was still on the board. And you've heard me talk about Tyree Wilson. I was on him last October. Uh, I just think he has all the traits and tools and the length, and the wingspan, like an 85-inch wingspan, I think he measured in with. He's strong. He's athletic. He's tenacious. He has a high motor. Tough to envision the Seahawks passing on him if he's on the board. But for the sake of this argument, I wanted to show you what a quarterback draft might look like, knowing now that he wouldn't have to play right away, that the Seahawks would have the luxury of developing him on their timeline. And if the guy's ready to play in one year, they can move on from Geno Smith. If he's not ready to play until year three, they have Geno Smith on a team-friendly deal. So I traded down with the Las Vegas Raiders for their second-round pick, number 38, and their fifth round pick, number 43. It's a little bit of an overpay, but historically, teams overpay based on the trade chart to move up and get a quarterback. And the Seahawks, when they're on the phone with the, with the Raiders, they're going to know that that's what the Raiders are doing. And, and in this case, the Raiders moved up and took Anthony Richardson at five. So I got I have the Seahawks. So here, if you're watching the live feed, let me screen share this for you. 
So there it is. Number seven, I took Will Levis. He's a guy that I think physically is going to appeal to John Schneider. Because John Schneider did fall in love with Josh Allen, and there are some similarities. The other things that I think he's going to love about John Schneider, we've heard John Schneider say in the past, before he drafted Russell Wilson, when everybody knew he was looking for opportunities to acquire quarterbacks in the draft, he said, I I want a guy that can tilt the room. It'll be interesting to see if he dusts off that saying and brings it back sometime over the next month. Uh, Everything I hear and read about Will Levis is he is a a respected leader on his team and an incredibly hard worker. Um, And regardless of what you think about what he looked like on the field last year, and yeah, I don't think he threw for over 180 yards in any game, threw some interceptions. Um, You can make excuses or you can call these reasons, but he was fighting a foot injury. Um, His offensive line was absolutely terrible, particularly his right tackle. Just had no chance against good edges in that conference. Levis was running for his life. Didn't get much time to set in a clean pocket and set his feet. And also uh, a lot of his skill guys had graduated or moved on to the NFL. Um. But the intangibles and the makeup are there too. And I think that's going to appeal to Schneider too. But again, if you don't like Will Levis, just imagine any quarterback here. That's the point of this exercise. Stroud falling to seven. Richardson at seven. Just to see how it falls. We get to 20, and I did something that I haven't done yet this entire mock draft season. I've stayed away from Nolan Smith out of Georgia, the 6'3", 235-pound edge. And again, just a little editorial note. I think the word edge is is used in a lazy manner sometimes. And I think it confuses fans. I've, I've drafted a lot of guys like Tyree Wilson or Keon White or Lucas Van Ness and had fans tell me, we don't need another edge. We need, we need an outside linebacker. Or uh, it's, I think edge is used in a lazy way to describe anyone that lines up on the edge, whether he's a 4-3 defensive end, a 3-4 outside linebacker, and even some 3-4 defensive ends. It's confusing sometimes. Nolan Smith looks like a linebacker. I've stayed away from him because those dimensions, 6-3, uh, isn't going to play as a down lineman, isn't going to play as a true 3-4 defensive end. I thought he was a little redundant with what the Seahawks already had on hand with Daryl Taylor and Uchenna Nwosu, Boye Mafe, who's bigger than him, quite a bit bigger, and even Alton Robinson potentially coming back from injury and Tyreek Smith, who they drafted in the fifth round out of Ohio State last year, missed the whole year on injured reserve. But after seeing the combine and how dynamic he was in his testing, a 4 3 a 41 and a half inch vertical jump looked amazing in the drills. Not a lot of production only had eight and a half sacks coming off, off the edge, but played in a bunch of games over 30 games. And Daniel Jeremiah at the combine said he almost likes him more playing in space as much or more playing in space than he does having him come off the edge. And then the news today that Seahawks met with him and did a formal interview with him at the combine And Nolan Smith went on a podcast today and talked about how much he loves the Seahawks and the Legion of Boom were very influential for him. And he was really excited about the possibility of being drafted by Nolan Smith. So I thought, okay, best player available, right? 
That's what John Schneider has said. We're not going to force anything. We're going to take the best player available. If Nolan Smith's there at 20, with that kind of dynamic athletic upside, uh, might be kind of hard to pass on at that point. And they'll figure out how to use him. Carroll talked at the Combine about, when asked about how's that defense going to improve in 2023, and he talked again about how they're they're working really hard to meld things together. I think what we're going to see, as opposed to the, is it going to be a 3-4? Is it going to be a 4-3? I think we're going to see a hybrid, and it's going to be fit to the talent that they acquire. So maybe you use some more 4-3 concepts with Nolan Smith or some more bare front stuff. But you just figure out a way to use that because that's a dynamic athlete coming off the edge. At 37 in the second round, Mazzy Smith fills a massive need on this roster. Your best nose tackle is Al Woods, 35 years old, coming off a year in which he had to battle some injuries. Mazzy Smith, 6'3", 337, one of Feldman's, Bruce Feldman's freaks, didn't test at the Combine. Did like 35 reps though at 225. Will test his pro day and is, is expected to test off the charts athleticism for that size. Another guy, not a lot of sacks in his career. I think only two and a half last year, maybe even total. But you see every single play he affects the pocket. He takes on two gaps. He pushes the pocket. And he affects the running game. And I think there's some upside there as a pass rusher. Um, getting a guy like Smith at 37 makes the Nolan Smith pick at 20 make a little more sense and fit a little bit better because you've taken care of that interior defensive line, which is really a weakness of the team last year going up against the draft or going up against the run. At 38, I talked about him already. I took Luke Whipler. I think he's going to appeal to this team. They're going to see him as a scheme fit and a plug-and-play rookie starter at center. At 51... In the second round, Julius Brents, the 6'3", 200-pound long corner out of Kansas State, had an outstanding combine, ran fast, looked great in the drills. He has a ton of experience as a mostly starter over his four years at Kansas State and a lot of experience playing press man coverage. He's been a big riser. Uh, he's been a regular uh He's been a regular fourth, fifth round pick for me in mocks this entire time. He's not available in the fourth or fifth anymore. And he might not be available at 51 because you're already starting to see him show up now at the top of the second round and even the late first round in some national mocks. At 83, Dorian Williams, a linebacker out of Tulane. 6'2", 225, known more as a coverage type linebacker who, uh, who has had some trouble shedding blocks and getting inside. Um, but he was the best of what was available at this spot. And here's what I'll say about that. Yes, I'm trying to point out here that you can still put a dynamic draft together if you take a quarterback at five or seven or nine. And I always, I always challenge people to do this. Imagine, ask yourself this. Take that pick away. The Seahawks don't have the fifth pick. That all they got from the Broncos deal was that extra second. But they're going in here picking 20th in each round at their native picks, and they have an extra high two and an extra high five. How would you feel about their ability to enhance this roster and, and address needs going into this offseason? There would still be just as much enthusiasm if we just didn't even have that pick. Look at it as a bonus, as a gift, right? But by taking a quarterback at five or seven like I did here, it does, there's an opportunity cost to that. 
And one thing I've done consistently in my mock drafts, you've seen a bunch of them online. If you follow me on Twitter, if you don't, you should at Seahawks Forever, is typically in the second, third round, I get my linebacker that I want. I get Jack Campbell out of Iowa, or I get Dan Henley out of Washington State, or DeMarvian Overshone out of Texas, or sometimes even Sanders or Simpson. I didn't get those guys. I couldn't pass up Whipler because the fall off to the next best group of centers was too severe after that. Didn't want to risk losing those guys by the time I got to 51. But Dorian Williams has a lot of upside as a coverage linebacker um, and could be some good value there. And by the way, when you're looking at this, I love the PFF mock draft simulator. It's become my favorite interface because I like how you can do trades. You can force any trade. Uh, some of the other simulators won't let you do certain trades because they don't really follow the trade chart. Um, and so they have a warped sense of value. Um, but I just like how it works on my phone and on PC. But the grading, um, while I do think their big board is a little more accurate, uh, the grading is kind of out of whack. Yeah, an F for Luke Whipler at the 38th pick in this draft is absolutely ridiculous but I don't look at that and I don't care. So an F for Dorian Williams in the third round at the 83rd pick. Um, good coverage linebacker. Seahawks need that. Uh, in the fourth round. Now this one I want to talk about for a minute because uh, I take a tight end and I've, every time I post a mock with a tight end taken, I get, I get clap back. Don't need a tight end. They don't need a tight end. They don't need a tight end. They have other needs. Um, again, best player available. You're going to take the player that you think has the best chance to be a really good NFL player. Second of all, 2024, there's only one tight end at her contract, and that's Will Disley. Will Disley's had some injury issues. So beyond this year, nobody else is under contract. Are they going to extend Noah Fant beyond this year? Will they extend Colby Parkinson? We don't know. And this is an offense that is built largely around use of the tight end. This is also a tight end group that has been called the best tight end group in 10 years. Daniel Jeremiah said that himself during the combine. You typically don't want to not get involved in classes of position groups that are highly rated. Cornerback is the other one in this year's class. You want to take advantage of that. And I've even take, taken tight ends higher. Luke Musgrave, outstanding athlete that's going to appeal to the Seahawks. Dalton Kincaid, Max Mayer. I uh, took Luke Schoomaker here. To me, he's kind of one of the better all-around tight ends. 6'6", uh, 250, 52 catches last year, uh, or the last two years, 600 yards, six touchdowns. Good all-around tight end. Really moves well for his size, catches the ball well. He can help you in the passing game, but also solid blocker. Some of these guys that you're seeing in this group of tight ends that are being so highly rated are going to need some work in the blocking side of things and are more of a move tight end coming out initially. Fifth round now, we have three picks, and then I'm going to stop in the fifth round. That's as far as I'm going to go today. Uh, this is the first time I've taken this kid in any mock draft of the hundreds I've done, but I've, I've watched him. I've admired him. I love his tape. I just haven't really had an opportunity where he fit. I think he does in this case. Charlie Jones out of Purdue. Um, just under six foot, 180 pounds. To me, played outside at Purdue. It was Aiden O'Connell's top target. I see him as a guy that can play in the slot. Had 110 catches last year at Purdue for 1,361 yards, 12 touchdowns. But here's the other thing I like about Charlie Jones. First of all, I think he fits. 
think adding a slot receiver that has some shiftiness and some quickness, catch the ball really well, is something that this team needs to complement Tyler Lockett and DK on the outside. Um, I think he could be dynamic in there. Imagine a Hunter Renfro, but with better athletic upside. But here's the other thing. Guy returns kicks and punts. When was the last time the CX had a really, really good? I know Godwin Igwe Buike looked great as a kickoff returner at the end of last year, but he's not going to give me any value as a running back. And so, you know, will they be able to carry him on the roster? But Charlie Jones has returned 77 punts in his career at Purdue and last year had 47 kickoff returns. Uh, sorry, I thought I was reading it. Had, had, I may have written that wrong. No, he had 77 punt returns in his career and uh, 47 kickoff returns. In 2021, he had 635 yards on 25 kickoff returns, including a 100-yard TD. This guy can help you in the return game and potentially be a dynamic slot receiver for you. For you. I think there's great value there. I do think the Seahawks are going to take a running back in this draft. I don't think they'll dip into free agency. Maybe they bring Penny back on a cheaper deal coming off his injury, but I still think they would hedge it with a younger back. And Evan Hull, I like more and more every day. Out of Northwestern, 5'11", 210, that matches with the Seahawks specs they like at, court, at running back. Very productive player at Northwestern who stood out in the Senior Bowl for how hard he ran. And then you saw him at the Combine. First of all, his production at Northwestern, 1,900 rushing yards, 12 touchdowns, another 80 this over the last two seasons, 1,900 yards rushing, uh, 12 touchdowns on the ground. 88 catches also over the last two seasons for 800 yards and four more touchdowns. So he can help you running the football and throwing the football. And you just know that Pete Carroll noticed that every time Evan Hull ran a running back drill, a bag drill, a footwork drill, he then finished by running full speed into the end zone. Said that's something he's been doing for a couple of years now, just to kind of develop and lock in his mindset. Um, and then uh, the last pick in the fifth round for the Seahawks at 156, Mojo Ajomo. A defensive tackle I wasn't familiar with out of Texas, 6'3", 281. He is a noted run stopper. Tested well, looked good in the drills at the combine. Didn't know who he was heading into the combine. Um, the I read one run, uh, scouting report, though, that said that his run defense can be teaching tape. So a guy that can rotate in and be uh, can play the nose and maybe even at that size can play some five technique, three, four defensive end standing up. Um, really interesting there. So Levis at seven, you still end up with a dynamic athletic edge in Nolan Smith, a guy, Mazzy Smith, who might be the best nose guard in the draft and, and a really freakish athlete to stop the run. Luke Whipler, you're starting center as a rookie, Julius Brents, a Seahawky type long corner. Dorian Williams, weak side linebacker. Luke Schoomaker, a, a good, versatile, solid two-way tight end. Charlie Jones, potentially a slot receiver and kick and punt returner. Evan Hole, a guy that can really add some value uh, in both the passing game and the running game as a running back. And then a Jomo, a guy who could be a rotational defensive tackle or more, who could have some versatility inside and outside. So again, the point here, if you see, if you don't like any of these names, put another name in. If you don't like Williams, pick another linebacker. You don't like Schoonmaker, pick another tight end. I just, when I do these mocks, I try to get a feel for how to address positional need with the best, highest upside athlete with the best potential to be an outstanding NFL player and contribute as a rookie and beyond. 
So uh, before I go, let's take a look at some of the comments. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, soon, soon. K soon, soon says, I love the hedging tactic. Something the Seahawks do. Um, doesn't like Nolan Smith though. I see that as I was scrolling up. Uh, thinks he's just a, nope, divine comedy says. He's a tweener who will be lost in the pros. The next Nick, Nick Benito, just a combine warrior. We don't know that. It's how you use him. You figure out how to, how to put that guy in a position to use his skills. Um, Divine Comedy also says Tyree Wilson feels like the 2023 episode of the traits-based bust that every round one provides. Watch the tape. I disagree. I disagree. He's dominating at the line of scrimmage in the run game and the pass game and, and affecting pockets. Um, see, uh, here's someone, you know, chipping in on the quarterback situation, GFGB, uh, CJ or AR, Anthony Richardson, no Bryce and please no Levis. Again, this was not about who you think is the best quarterback or the best player at these spots. I'm telling you right now, if the Seahawks take a quarterback at five or, or lower, just trust John Snyder. He's not going to take, he's not going to take a flyer. He's not going to take a quarterback just to take a quarterback. He doesn't have to. And here's my final note on this. If they don't take a quarterback, and first of all, there's another way they can do this too. And I thought about showing you this and I, and I will two weeks from now on what will be my last mock draft Monday to the, under the field goals banner, presumably, unless we get another extension. Um, I want to play around with the idea of getting a quarterback in the second round because I think there's a lot to be said about Hendon Hooker now. Now that we know the Geno Smith deal is really short term, Hooker coming off the ACL, a guy that doesn't throw a lot of interceptions, very accurate passer, great arm talent, kind of physically reminds me of Geno Smith, but coming off the ACL might need that year to get fully back to 100% health, checked out well at the combine in his, in his uh, medical testing. Um, but I want to look at maybe some of those scenarios with taking Hendon Hooker in the second round, see how this fills out. Um, but there is the 2024 quarterback draft. And while a lot of you said to me, and this is a valid, valid opinion, hey, we hear every year, wait till next year, that's supposed to be the great quarterback draft. You're right. This year was supposed to be it because it wasn't just going to be C.J. Stroud, Bryce Young, Anthony Richardson, Will Levis, it was also going to be Sam Hartman and Michael Penix Jr. And maybe a guy like Devin Leary or Grayson McCall. And a lot of those guys decide to take NLI money or transfer to, to enhance their profile and stay in school. Well, they can only do that for so long. Those guys are coming out next year. Plus, you know, the Caleb Williams and maybe Quinn Ewers and Drake May and Penix and when you do look ahead to next year's class, it not only looks really good at the top, but also a little bit more spread out throughout the draft where you can get on day two a potential face of your franchise. So the Seahawks know that too, and that could be a potential as well. But I love doing these things. They're fun. I love your, your, uh, um, your reaction to them and your interaction. Thanks for doing that. Thanks for listening again. This show will still be called Field Goals and be under the Field Goals banner for the rest of this month through the 31st while they figure out the best way to move the feed over to another platform so that I can take it over from there. At which case, uh, you don't have to do a thing. 
subscribe to the show. And when it, when it becomes Seahawks forever, it's just going to be a rebranding with different graphics and a different name, but you'll still be subscribed. You'll still get notification of new episodes and it'll show up in your feed on Apple podcasts or whatever you use. Um, but we have a lot to talk about between now and then. Dana just confirmed with me. She is going to join me. We're going to get together um, before free agency starts next week. And uh, and I'll come up with some names for you. I'll, I'll give you some specific names of guys. And, and I'll, I'll do some work on what some projected contract values are. There's some great resources out there for that. And who I think might fit the Seahawks scheme-wise and also dollar-wise. Who they might be targeting in sort of that tier two, tier three free agency that I like to play in. So we'll do that next week. And then as we head beyond that, we'll be here for breaking news and reacting to that. Certainly next week, uh, if the Seahawks do make any big free agency signings or lose any players of note, uh, we will react to that. And I, I did say today, again, on the anniversary of Russell Wilson being traded and Bobby Wagner being released, that, uh, hey, maybe the Seahawks will announce that they're re-signing Bobby Wagner today, one year from the day he was released. And then somebody reminded me that even though the Rams have announced that they are releasing Wagner, they will not make it official until one week from today on the 15th. But we'll certainly keep our eye out on that. I mean, he he did change his Twitter banner to a Seahawks skyline, after all. I am Dan Viennes. This is the Field Goals Podcast for now. Follow me on Twitter at Seahawks Forever. Thanks for listening and watching. Subscribe, like, review the podcast. We appreciate it. Until then, go Hawks. Go Hawks.